Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Curtis, you grew up in the uh, the small East Yorkshire town of Driffield. How would you describe your childhood? Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I've got nothing but good memories, really, from probably my first memories of seven or eight years old were, were all the same of just playing football. You know, I'm from the era that as soon as the um, as soon as you woke up, you got your football, you went out on the street and, and everyone played football. There used to be 15, 20 lads all running around, kicking about. And yeah, they're my first early memories, me and my brother kicking about with all the neighbours. So yeah, good memories. What about your parents? Yeah, well, my uh, my mom and and dad both worked really hard. What, they, um, what did they do? My well, my mum's had about fifty jobs, to be honest. And good for her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, listen, I always say that that's probably where I get my work ethic from is from my parents. I've never known either of them to be without a job. Um, so they worked all over doing all different types of things to to prov- provide for me, my brother, and my sister. So. Okay, and do you, uh, you, 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 you're obviously playing football very early on. Mm. Um, where did the boxing come in? Was that a later thing, or, or, or you always interested in boxing as well? I, I was, I've always been a boxing fan. Um, I, my first boxing memories are sitting up listening to the, the Mike Tyson fights on the radio with my dad. Um, just fascinated with this guy that was just knocking everybody out. Um, like I said, I was born in 1980, so yeah. I was right in the Mike Tyson era, and he really, really captured my imagination on the boxing side. But I mean, I never, never boxed. Just used to, just used to be a fan. The, the closest I got to boxing as a kid was our next door neighbour, but one, um, Bobby Brooksby, if he's listening. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they used to have a pair of cricket gloves, and they had no boxing gloves on the estate I lived on, so. We just used to have one glove each, corner the uh, back garden off, <laughs> and go at it. And um, which, which, but the important thing is, which, which glove did you get? Because if you're, if you're right-handed, you don't want the left glove, do you? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I can't remember what I got, but whatever, whichever one I did got didn't work very well. Because I think at my first fifty, I think I must have lost fifty. So <laughs> it was there. Uh, look, now all, all good memories. What about, uh, what about school? Um, what are your memories of being at school, Curtis? I I was one of them. I, I struggled a bit at school. I've, I left with no GCSEs. I got one GCSE and that was in PE. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really struggled. It wasn't it wasn't my domain. Um, I came to life when when it was time to do PE. That was kind of my speciality. I, mm-hmm. I was you know maths, English, geography, all things like that. Just you could sit me in a classroom for five hours and teach me that stuff, and it'd go 
in one ear and out the other. I've just struggled to, to process the information. I was never naughty at school. I, no, I can't no. remember. I can't. I'll never talk back to teachers or or anything like that. Um, but I just really struggled. It, it was it was hard work for me. I mean. Uh I guess at an early age, did you, did you know you had a fantastic? I mean, look, we're going to talk about a person who's playing professional football. You know, in the in the man's game at seventeen, hmm. did you did you very early know uh, not just some kind of wild kid's dream, but did you know you had the talent uh, to have, to give professional football a crack? Well, the the thing is, where I mean, when I was a young lad, we were on, um, let's say, in in Driffield. I was brought up on the estate called Northfield Crescent. Now. I was the youngest on that state, so I was, the, by no stretch of the imagination, the best player. Um, so I never thought, oh, I'm miles better than everyone, I'm definitely going to be a professional. But it was when I started playing for the school team and playing with players my own age um, that had similar physical attributes to me that, that I realised that, that I had a little bit of talent. And I remember one day I played for the school team and a good friend of mine at school, Howard Leach, his, his dad was watching the game. My dad was at work, so he couldn't come. And after the game, I remember Des Leach coming round to our house, knocking on the door um, and basically saying, is your dad in? So I came in and I remember him sat there saying to my dad, have you seen your Curtis play football? And my dad said, well, yeah, only in the only in the front garden or whatever. Yeah. And he says, y- you need to go and watch him play. He's, he's, he's very good. Um, and, ever, and ever from then, really, I, I joined at 10 years old, I joined Bridlington Rangers because where I lived, we, we had no football team. Driffield had no football. They've got loads now, but back in my day they had right. no they had no junior football team so the nearest team to me was Bridlington Rangers out so there I, on the coast yeah yeah so I joined them at, at under 10s and 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 that was when my first involvement really with I mean those I mean at age group now they all play eight aside seven aside but back in my day it was full on the 11 aside pitches and you know I, I think with that team I think we went about three or four years unbeaten we had a we had a really really good side I mean I played alongside Lee Morris in that team oh yeah, who was who I went to school with, um, and so we had me and him in the same team at, at Brilliant and Rangers, and we 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 beat all oncomers. I mean, of course, uh, then 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 of course professional clubs start looking at you, and Sheffield United. You're 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 at Sheffield United from the age of twelve. Is that right? Yeah. Well, my best friend at school was Lee Morris because we we shared a common interest in football, um, and on a weekend I used to go around to his house to to play football. He lived in Killam, just up the road, so. We used to go to the field in Killam and his dad used to come along. And I remember going home after one kickabout with Lee saying to my dad, have you seen Lee Morris's dad play football? I said, dad, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And my dad said to me, well, he should be. He's, he's played 500 league games. Uh-huh. And, I, and I didn't know at the time, but you know, any Sheffield United fan will remember Colin Morris fondly. I mean, he used to get the ball, dribble down the wing, cross it in, and me and Lee used to try and score. So, yeah, I was, um, I was educated very early from an excellent player so it was actually Colin that rang Sheffield United up and says um, my son and his best friend are, are good can can they have a trial so we went down at 12 and I think I made my debut at 17 and, and Lee made his debut at 17 or 18 as well so we, we stayed all the way through and went right through the, the youth programs together and well we should make the point that when you joined Sheffield United as a 12 year old um, they are not. They weren't the team that we see now. It's struggling in the third uh, uh, t- t- tier of English football. They were in the Premier League with players like uh, uh, Brian Dean and uh, Brian Gale, Alan Cork, uh, Dean Whitehouse, uh, Dane Whitehouse. Franz Carr was playing there, uh, yeah. and, and others besides. Curtis, uh, you signed as a full apprentice with Sheffield United at the age of 16. I think the wage for such a thing in the mid 90s 
was £42 a week. You probably remember better than me. What do you remember about this period of your, of your life, uh, trying to become a professional footballer? Well, it's £42.50. I know okay. that. And that 50p was very important by the end of the month. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell everyone, from 16 to 18, doing my apprenticeship were the best two years of my life. Um, Why do you say that, Curtis? I mean, you're living a life, you, you're, with, you're with 20 other lads, you know, you, you're, you're doing something you love. It, it's not about money. It, it's all about trying to achieve a dream that everyone had the same. We all wanted to be professional footballers. You know, it, it, and there was no, there was no bullshit. It, it was all about one thing, and that was trying to, trying to chase that dream, dream that we'd all had since we were nine, ten years old. And if I could go back to any point in my career or life, it'd be as a 16-year-old kid. I'll never forget. I, I pulled up at, at the digs at, at, at 16. My digs lady was called Rita. Um, I remember I had a little brown suitcase, a tracksuit on, and I just remember thinking, "Wow, this is the start of of, of the rest of my life." And yeah, I loved it. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting that you're, you're self-aware enough to know that it's going to be a because lots of people at that age wouldn't even have thought about the journey that lay ahead about, and they would be living from second to second. Yeah. I mean, you obviously make great progress. I mean, Nigel Spackman was the manager at, uh, at Sheffield United at the time. Yeah. Um, and you obviously make great progress because you, you were only 17 when you make make your debut um, against Crewe in mm. the second tier of English football. What, do, you, do you remember being told about that you're going to play tomorrow? Yeah, I, me- I remember it like it was yesterday. And and like I said, my my life, my home life had, had already started spiraling out of control. My mum and dad had got divorced when I was 15. So I moved away to Sheffield and I kind of knew then from an early age that this was my one opportunity to, to make something of my life. Um, like I said, it was already in, in turmoil, really. So I knew I had to take my opportunity. So Curtis, Sorry to interrupt you. When you yeah. say it was in turmoil, you mean just because of your parents' divorce? Obviously, very difficult for any teenager to deal with. Yeah. Or was there other stuff as well? Well, it, it was it was all from that, really. And, and like I said, there was, it wasn't an amicable divorce. It was There was a lot of things going on, so... It was a real difficult time. My mum, my brother and sister had moved away. I'd not seen, I didn't see them for six months or, or whatever it was. And, and then I'd moved away. Um, my dad had moved away from the area. So it was just a real difficult time. So I just remember thinking when I, when I got to Sheffield that this is it. This is all or nothing. If this doesn't work out, then, you know, kind of thinking I, I ain't got a clue what I'm going to do. So it helped me because uh, it helped me cat- catapult all my energies into one thing and that was making something in my life uh, absolutely um the nigel spackman i say gave you your debut how did you get on with nigel i really liked him he, he was he was a top man um and he believed in 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 the youth you know he used to we used to play our kickoffs used to be at 11 o'clock in the morning and um, whenever we were at home he used to be on the sideline and for a 16 year old kid playing for the the youth team to see the first team manager there it gives you a little spring in your step and you know Russell Slade always used to say that if you keep doing the business you'll be in the team and you know I had a little bit of arrogance even then I used to watch the first team play and think I'm better than him I should be playing I used to say to, I used to, say to Russell all the time when am I going to get my chance and he was like you're 16 take your time but I, I knew deep down that I wasn't far off that first team squad and whether it was true or not you know, it, I suppose it proved out to be because I, I made my debut at 17. But, you know, it was, it, I always tell everybody, you need that little bit of swagger, a little bit of arrogance to, to believe that you're good enough to be in the team. And I, and I had that. And I guess I guess that that's doubly so when we come on to, uh, you know, you're one of you know, the only person I can think of who's made this double career. Um, not not just uh, doing it for, for a TV program like, like, like Flintoff, bless him. Um, but, you know, boxing as well requires that kind of self-belief. Otherwise, you, nobody could get through 
uh, those ropes and hope to hope to, to survive. Um, the reason I asked you about Nigel Spackman is because uh, let's be honest here, Curtis, you have a you have a, a, a occasional conflicts with managers. It's fair to say. So I, th- I just wanted to make the point that you do get on with at least one of them. Yeah, I think actually I think he's the only one that I've not oh, fallen out with. <laughs> the only one, very <laughs> but, good. Yeah, because I wasn't he wasn't there for that long. If he'd have stayed any longer, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we'd have fallen out. Well, we'll come on. <laughs> we'll come on to who came next because he's a person who's had a lot of uh, influence in your life. Uh, the next Sheffield United manager. Before that, that you mentioned Russell Slade. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, uh, a top football manager these days himself is the current Cardiff City manager. But he was there for all that time you were growing up at Sheffield United. I'm delighted to say that Russell joins us now. Uh, good evening, Russell. Good evening. Good afternoon, even. Uh, yeah, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you for joining us here on TalkSport. It's funny, uh, you, you might be. this might be a teacher-pupil uh, relationship. I can already hear um, Curtis giggling like your school teacher has appeared in the, in the room again. Say hello to each other. Hey, you're, right, okay, you're okay. Yeah, I'm good, no, mate. No, hey, when he was a little boy, he'd be quaking in his boots. <laughs> <laughs> Russell, you know, he's already told me that at 16 years of age, he was telling you that he should be in the first team at Sheffield United. What do you remember about the young Curtis Woodhouse? Yeah, Kurt, Curtis um, wasn't shy, um, but um, he had great ability, um, and he was confident in his ability. Um, used to love to get forward to get a goal, didn't know how to defend. Okay, so I stuck him at left back. I don't think he was too, I don't think he was too pleased about being left back. But you know what? It, it, it taught him how to defend. I think it was a really good move. And I'm not quite sure, Kurt, but when you had your England call up for the under 21s, I think you were shoved in at left back. Yeah, I remember. And, and everybody's thinking, everybody's thinking, well, will he be, will he be okay there? The only person that was confident was me because I'd shoved him in the youth team. You at knew left he could back do it. For a good few games, I knew yeah. he could do it. Yeah. Um, Russell, you know when you when you saw him, because uh, this is this is an amazing story. This is a person with a ton of football talent who then goes off to excel at another sport. Um, did you think he was one of those? I mean, it's hard to tell now, Russell. But did you think he was one of those kids who would definitely have a professional career, but could actually go on to have a very good professional career? Oh yeah, def- definitely. I mean, there was, there was talk of Curtis at one stage, certainly in terms of the football, going to uh, places like. Uh, Rangers for for uh, at the time three or four million. I mean, uh, he was creating an awful lot of interest. Um, and and as much as but, but as much as he he appeared to love the football and, and and was so talented at football, he did have a passion for another sport, as you well know. Absolutely. I mean, and, and when later on down the line, you know, in the middle of his football career, uh, you, you heard that uh, he was going to become a professional boxer. Were you surprised, Russell? No, not at all, really, because I knew it was a passion. Um, you know, if, when when Curtis was at, was at the club, um, it was a time when there was more sports science and you, fitness coaches were getting on board. And um, you know, he, he loved sometimes when when these fitness guys put on the put on the gloves because he knocked most of them out. Um, you know, in the in, in sparring in, in a little gym session or whatever, he loved that. And I remember what one of those fitness coaches said: "He's really talented." It's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, you, you, anybody can put on a pair of gloves and, and we can all make the shapes of, of boxers because we've seen so many, so much of the sport. But when somebody turns around and says, oh, he's actually very talented, of course it, it, it's different. Listen, Russell, we just wanted to get you on here and give us a flavour of the young Curtis uh, uh, Woodhouse. Um, all I can do at this stage is wish you the best of luck next season in Cardiff. OK, thanks very much, Kurt, and uh, right. good luck to you too, pal. Hopefully we'll catch up soon. Nice to speak to you, Russ.
Take care, mate. Yeah, Russell, Slade, Russell Slade there, one of our better um, uh, English football managers these days uh, at Cardiff City. Um, in the summer of 1998, um, Nigel Spackman left Sheffield United, Curtis, and he was replaced by Steve Bruce, who, of course, uh, has gone on to have an amazing, uh, you know, he was there at the club for a long time and did great things in many ways. Um, how did you get on with Steve? I mean, uh, I probably played my best football of my whole career um, the season Steve Bruce came. Um, and the reason I've I've got so much affection for, for Russell Slade is um, when he left Sheffield United, that's when my career started spiraling out of control because, like I explained to you earlier, when I turned up at Sheffield United at 16, you know, my, things in my personal life were already in trouble and Russ was that one that I really looked up to. Even then when he was on the phone, I was a little bit scared to talk. Because I could I, hear it. Because <laughs> I just thought, well, I, 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 Russ is one of them that I never, ever want to disappoint I never want to let down I, and even I finished my career at Grimsby Town and the only reason I went to Grimsby is because Russ rang me I'd already decided I was going to retire I didn't want to play again um, and Russ rang me and, and just says listen come and come and give me uh, four more months I think I went at Christmas till the end mm. of the season and he, the, there's Jose, if Jose Mourinho would have rang I wouldn't have gone but when Russell rang I knew that I owed him everything so I thought I could um, the least I could do is go and help out um, but yeah, going, going back to Steve Bruce, I played some of my best football when he came to the football club. Um, and I think I got the player of the year that year. Still now a record at Sheffield United, the, the youngest ever player of the year. I think I was 18 years old and we had players in the team like Don Hutchinson, um, Paul McGrath, David Holdsworth, Dean, Dean Saunders. Hutchinson and McGrath, it sounds like a, a very troubled, uh, could be quite a lot of trouble in that dressing room. We had a good night out, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about your social life I want to turn to, because, uh, we know, look, we mustn't hide from the listeners. Um, no one would claim you're a model professional staying in the, uh, in the evening and uh, and doing you know core exercises or well, anything like that. Well, you say that, but I, ref I refute that. Well, you Go know, we're, we're talking about me as an 18-year-old yes. now. Um, now, as me as an 18-year-old was on point. Mm. You know, I used to finish training in the morning, training in the afternoon, because I was I was I wanted to get better. I want I, or boxing wasn't on my mind at this point. I was just determined to be the best I could be. Um, as my career went on, then then yeah, you know, it spiraled out of control. When when a lot of my um, people I looked up to left the football club, those ins and outs at Sheffield United and all the backroom staff had pretty much left, and I kind of felt a little bit isolated on my own. And also, then one thing happened to me, which all my young life never even contemplated, never came into my head. I just wanted to play football. That's all I wanted. And then one thing happened to me, which changed everything. And that's, I signed my first big contract. And all of a sudden now, I'm on big money. I'm 18 years old. I'm a kid. Um, and then money came into my life. And as I've got older, I've realized that I'm not the type of person that needs every door opening from no. <laughs> some doors need to be firmly shut for me um, <laughs> but financial reward opens pretty much any door you want and that's when you know everything started to spiral out of control and got and got too much for me well look we'll talk about about the the socializing in just a second i mean we must start because look um i i came out of the music business uh, before i was a sports uh, journalist um, and uh, I know that the, uh, the most famous club in Sheffield is called the Lead Mill. Uh, the, yeah, Lead Mill. So tell the story about when you and Wayne Quinn um, were reported to Steve Bruce of having, uh, having had a, bit, a big night out. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> Wayne Quinn used to live, um, we used to, I used to have an apartment in this building and Wayne, Wayne Quinn lived above me. Um, 
and I just got into the first team. Um, never used to go out, like I said, I used to be a model professional at 18 years old. And I'll never forget one night, Quinny says to me, do you fancy a night out? And I was like, well, we're training tomorrow. And he was like, come on, we'll be all right. So we went out to Leadmill. Um, and I'll never forget, I walked in the place and I felt like a rock star, you know, because I'd probably played 30 games for Sheffield United at this time and I was the next big thing coming through. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden I walked into the nightclub and everybody knew I was and people were coming up to me. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I look in the mirror, I'm at my best, probably a four out of ten looks wise. But uh-huh. <laughs> when you when you walk into a nightclub and you're, you're playing for the local team and, you know, people know you've got a few quid, all of a sudden you become a solid nine out of ten. Yeah, so. very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So not get, a feeling I've experienced. I'll take your word for it, Curtis. <laughs> so you get girls throwing themselves at you and people buying you drinks. And I just remember going home that night thinking, wow. <laughs> Yeah. There's a whole new, a whole yeah. new side. To Curtis has arrived. Curtis yeah. is in the building. Yeah, and listen, I, I love to say, you know, it was terrible, you know, and I regret it. But I've got to be honest, it was, it was amazing. We had a great time. And, and anyway, the, the, the next day, um, no, it was the next week actually. Um, Steve Bruce dragged me into the office, and he had a big pile of letters in front of him. Oh dear, yeah, squealers. And, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, grasses. Nobody <laughs> likes a grass. <laughs> I sat, I sat down on his desk, and he just threw these papers at me and says, "Read, read them. They're all about you." And I was like, "He, he says, were you in the, uh, were you in the treadmill last week?" <laughs> and I, and I says, I says, no. I says, Gaffer, no, I want no. He says, "Look, look me in the eye and tell me you were in the treadmill." So I looked him in the eye and says, Gaffer, I swear on my whole family's life, I wasn't in the treadmill and I've never been in the treadmill my whole life. And he, and he says to me, he says, well, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to give you that trust and, you know, I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah. What he didn't know is the place was called the lead mill. Yeah. And you so, were telling the truth. <laughs> I was telling the truth. So so te- <laughs> technically, I wasn't lying. <laughs> I remember the next day I got in and he, I seen him in the morning. He had a, a face like thunder. He says, my office now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I sat down and uh, I won't repeat. Well, I'll, I'll repeat, but I'll bleep it out. But he sat me down. He says, you think you're king clever, don't you? <laughs> and he just went absolutely ballistic and, and tore strips off me. But. Yeah. yeah, but it was, it was, I'm sure you'll see the funny side now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Curtis, just to try and explain to people just how good you were as a young footballer, um, it's pretty quick in 1999. Um, you're very much straight into, uh, you're young enough to be in the under-21 side as a 19-year-old. Mm. Um, we'll talk about the games in a second, but 
were you getting a feeling, and you've already described the feeling of walking into a nightclub like a king, um, but were you getting the feeling that you were going to be a top footballer at this stage? Uh, at this point, I, um, I don't, don't forget, I played for the under-16s, mm-hmm. the under-18s, the under and then I've got in the under-21, so I've gone through the full um, recognition from each age group. So at, at this point, I, I fully believe that I'm going to play for England, the full team. Um, I remember getting phone calls off Jamaica, um, when they were in the in the World Cup and asking if I wanted to go and play for them and obviously go to a World Cup. But, you know, I, I was thinking, well, I'm going to play for England. So, you know, it's not really something I'm looking at at the moment. No. And like I said, the, the other players, when I, when I went to England and trained with them, I wasn't, I, I felt like I was on that level with the rest of the players. I mean, people like J.B. Carragher in Lampard, Jody Morris there was a, was a very good player. Gareth Barry was Gareth in. Gareth Barry, yeah. yeah. Danny so Mills, James Beattie, all of whom went on to play for the for the senior team. Yeah, exactly. And I ended up being a boxer, so it's, so it's yeah. not quite right there. But <laughs> No, no, but that's why, we're, that's why we're here this evening, isn't it, Coach? Exactly. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, so you you get picked uh, for the, uh, the uh, in 1999 for the under-21s. I mean, I guess... If you come through the age groups at 16 and 18, it's not such a big thing. But uh, many of the professional footballers, tough, tough men that I've uh, interviewed uh, on this program over the years, when you say what was the highlight of your career, they often just stare at you like, like it's a stupid question. Then they point to their chest and say, the three lions, the mm. three lions. How did you feel about playing for England? I had this discussion the other day. My, my little boy, um, well, my eldest son's 12 years old and you know, he's never seen me play football. And he says to me, Daddy, what was the best part of your your football career and it took me took me back a little bit and I had to think and make my debut for Sheffield United was was amazing so I was, a, I was an officially a professional footballer something I always wanted to be but one thing I think about now and the airs come on the back of my neck is uh, stood singing the national anthem for England and it, it was just an amazing feeling I remember looking up and all my family were in the crowd and that and I just remember thinking wow um you know, just it felt great, you know, even seeing my mum and dad in the same place at the same time, I was thinking, guy, there's plenty of security around there. But, you know, just, just to sing the national anthem was, was an amazing, amazing feeling and something that I'll never forget. Yeah, and uh, you, you made that you made that England under twenty one debut against Hungary, mm. and then your second cap was against Sweden. I'm just looking uh, as a qualifier for the under twenty one championships uh, in Huddersfield, yeah. uh, so not a, not a million miles from where you, you're playing and living and all that. I'm just looking at, the, I mean. The team, Richard Wright went on to play for England. Kieran Dyer went on to play for England. Wes Brown, Danny Mills, um, Seth Johnson, Frank Lampard, Jamie Carragher, all, Jonathan Greening, all, I think, went on to play for England. Extraordinary yeah. team. And also, I was two years younger than all them. You know, I was yeah. from a younger age group. So, like, like I said to you earlier, when I was saying that I thought I'd go and play on for the full team, it wasn't pie in the sky. It was, I'd seen other people go on and do it, which, and I thought I was... Just as good, if not better, than some of them. So, yeah, yeah. and you uh, say two more caps against Bulgaria and Poland, which begs the question: Then you were only 19 when you made your last appearance for the England Under-21s. Why didn't you go on? I mean, you were still d- playing really well. Why didn't you go on to make more appearances at that level? Well, this, this was pretty much around about the time when I was spiraling out of control. Um, I was going out more and more and more. I, was, I put on so much weight. I mean, you look at me when I made my debut. I think I was probably 10 and a half, 11 stone. I was. Nobody in the squad was ever fitter than me. I was strong as a bull. Um, and then from probably two years after that, I was probably 13 and a half, close to 14 stone. And that was just from wow. dr- drinking, partying, eating crap. And you were still good enough to play professional football, despite, now we can say it, not looking after yourself properly. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. Um, but it's a horrible feeling to know you're doing something and you're underachieving, you know. But it, it's I'd already... 
I was in a, I was stuck in a rut, if anything. Uh, you know, I was kind of like, God, I didn't know what to do. I was in a routine of I'd, I'd go out Saturday, I'd go out all day Sunday, uh, I'd have a few on Monday just to kind of <laughs> sober me up a bit. We used to train Tuesday and have Wednesday off, so I'd finish training Tuesday, then go out all day, recover on Wednesday, have a few on Thursday, but not too many because we had a game on Saturday, and then Friday. I'd, I'd, I'd not have anything. The, the funny, the, the amazing thing, Curtis, now is that, of course, uh, then it's only 15 years ago. So, yeah. you know, when you're my age, that's a blinker, a blink of time. Mm. Um, now, of course, it would, it couldn't happen really in the same way. A, too many people have got cameras on mobile phones. Yeah. And B, clubs employ people to av- to get kids to avoid exactly these kind of temptations. You'd have had someone to talk to about it. Yeah, it, it, like I said, it was difficult. Um, I'm not blaming anybody else because nobody ever picked me up and dragged me out. But no. I, I, ne- I never, um, like I said, the game's changed so much now. I, 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 like I said, I signed a big contract and it was kind of like, kind of get on with it type of thing. I lived yeah. on my own out in a um, nice area in she- Sheffield. You know, I, was, I had no family around me, no no friends really, just teammates. And yeah, I, I was on my own with a pocket full of money. We finished training at half past 12, one o'clock. Um, what do you do? Yeah. Um, you know what I mean. So I kind of got stuck in a, in a. I don't play golf, um, so you know I want. I don't play snooker, but I I, I enjoyed a pint. And yeah. bef- before I know, knew it, two years down the line, I'd come for be, be gone from a, a sociable drinker to probably having a few on a Saturday after a game, to someone who was drinking like five, sometimes six days a week. And yeah. And, and like said, like saying there, blinking of an eye, I went from the top of my game at 17, 18, 19 to hit in every second of being a footballer at, at 21. And we're talking two years here, you know, and I, I'm not, I can't really put my finger on what happened, but before I knew it, I woke up one morning and, and it was over. Listen, let me ask you then about Neil Warnock. Obviously, Steve Bruce leaves Sheffield United. Adrian yeah. Heath has a brief period there. Neil Warnock comes. Now, look, I've worked a lot with Neil here at TalkSport. And he's very much a, a take-it-or-leave-it guy. He's a Marmite uh, person, if you like. People either get Neil or they don't. Um, he speaks very... He speaks in, in now, looking back, he, he speaks with great affection about you. But he did say to me um, that he thought you were getting into a lot of trouble behind his back and beyond his eye. Uh, he said more than once the police turned up um, uh, at the training ground and he never once even asked, well, what are they doing here? They, he, he'd come to assume they were looking for you, Curtis. Yeah, well, like I said, at, at this at this time, my life had completely spiralled out of control. I was in so much trouble um, off the pitch because, you know, what it's like you go out and Sheffield's got two teams in Sheffield. There's mm-hmm. Sheffield United and then the other lot. And sometimes when you're out in town and uh, I wasn't kind of one of them that'd ever shy away from confrontation. So if I was out in town in, in a bar drunk and somebody kind of wanted to have a fight, then... I'd have a fight. It wasn't anything that I'd ever say, well, you know, let's talk about it. No. <laughs> I was always brought up that get the first one in fast and as hard as you can. So that was that was how, how I went about things. I used to get in trouble all the time. And I, I like Neil Warnock, but ultimately he was fighting a losing battle with me. I was on the course to self-destruct and, and that was that. And no one could could stand in my way. That's kind of how it was. And Let- he, he tried his best. And I'm, I'll never forget, he sat me down one day and, and says to me, I think you've got, loads of talent, loads of ability, but if you carry on, you'll be out the game at 25, um, which is quite profound because I, I retired at 26. Yeah, so. pro- very prophetic, wasn't it? Yeah, he was actually wrong. He was a year out. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> he's an idiot. The man's an idiot, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I remember him sitting down and I remember going out that meeting thinking, 
what an idiot. What's what an old fool, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I look back now and think, God. But ultimately, nobody can help you if you're not willing to help yourself. And and I, and I wasn't. You know, I was in a room. I didn't mind if I went out and got drunk and had a fight. I didn't mind. And no, I'm going to ask Kurt, so I'm going to uh, This is the question. I think this is the crux moment, perhaps, of at least one strain and one string of this interview that we're trying to do, piece your life together. Mm. Curtis, for very many people listening to your voice now, we'll, we'll know the answer to this question. I mean... Boxing is boxing, but do you actually like fighting? I'd love to say no and, you know, give you the politically correct answer. And But I, I do. I enjoy confrontation. Not 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 everyone does. No, um, no, 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 no. Curtis, 99% of people are terrified of physical confrontation. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy fighting. And, and that's the reason why I started boxing is because I just like fighting. You know, everyone's different, you know, and, and there's no sexy way to say it or dressing it up but I enjoy fighting when I'm when I was in the ring when I was a boxer and gloves and punches are whizzing over my head and you're getting wobbles I'm thinking wow this is brilliant it's like being on a roller coaster you know you, you hate every second of it but as soon as it stops you're like god get me back on that yeah, and where's my tokens I gotta go again yeah exactly and I, and I listen I've had a growing up like going back to my childhood I, you know I'm, my dad's black my mom's white and you know I reckon I probably got called nigger maybe a hundred times a day every day so you know i was kind of i used to go home crying all the time my dad always used to say to me they're going to keep calling you unless you do something about it and you know so i fought nearly every day all day every day and i hated it i used to get beaten up all the time like i said i didn't probably win one until probably my 60th fight i maybe got my first win but i'd always fight i'd, I'd never back down i'd always fight and that's kind of gone with me as a you know because i'm always my dad always used to say you're even a lion or an antelope when you're in the jungle. And if you don't want to be an antelope, then you've got to stand up for yourself. So I did. And, and like I said, I do. I enjoy fighting. I'm, listen, I'm not, I don't go out looking for fights. Uh, and now, once it's got the discipline as a professional boxer, yeah. if somebody comes up and starts mouthing off at me when I'm in a bar, I can easily put my drink down and walk out of the situation. I'm 35 years old now. I'm a former professional fighter. You're talking about a 21-year-old kid here who don't know his ass from his elbow. So when people start on me at that age, I've already got my back open. If they want to have a fight, not a problem. Nine times out of ten, they came second. In, in February 2001, um, my goodness, we're already into the current century. That's how, how recent all these events were. Um, a big money transfer for you when uh, Trevor Francis comes in and pays a million pounds for you to go to Birmingham. What do you remember about that? And why did, you, did you want to move club? Uh, um, well, at, at the time... I just knew I needed to get out of the situation I was in, um, which was Sheffield, and I was in just a, a big, uh, like I said, I felt like I was on a roller coaster. I couldn't get off. Um, I was my life was crazy at this time. I couldn't stop going out, uh, so I just felt like I needed a change of scenery. And looking back now, the the worst thing I ever did was leave Sheffield United. Um, because bearing in mind, I've been there since I was 12 years old. I, I know everybody at the club. I feel like I've got a personal relationship with everybody. And I loved everybody. And, uh, and, we, and we, with the way you talk about what's happening in the rest of your life, I suppose Sheffield United, uh, given that your parents have broken up, is some, at least some kind of grounding, some kind of focus in your life. Yeah, and like I said, at, at this time, when I'm really in a rut, um, people like Russell Slade have left, John Dungworth, who was a youth, my youth team coach, Steve Miles, all these people that I used to look up to have now left the football club for whatever reason. Um, different coaches have come in when different managers come in. So I don't know what the word is, but you, you probably think your support system or people who I could rely on, mm -hmm. who, who, who I'd been able to trust for the last 
what, eight, nine years who've brought me through the youth team to make me a professional footballer, they've all left. Um, so I haven't got that that uh, that anybody to rely on anymore. I'm out there on my own. Um, they'd all gone. So I just knew I needed to get out of the situation I was in. Um, so Birmingham City came in for me. I remember Neil Warnock um, pulling me into his office saying, Birmingham City have, have come in for you and we've accepted the bid. Um, but if you want to stay... Uh, we'll offer you a new contract and you can stay. Um, and that's one thing I wish, I wish I'd wish i have stayed. Um, because when I left Sheffield United, nothing was ever the same. It, it, things got even worse. I didn't think they could at the time. But I went to Birmingham. I was already on good money at Sheffield United. I went to Birmingham City and my money doubled. Um, and that just meant I had twice as many problems. And, and it, it just... It was more money, more more problems, as the notorious <laughs> yeah. Big used to say. Yeah, and it, it was just you know one thing. I wish if I could turn back time, I, I, I wish I'd have, I'd have stayed in Sheffield. How did it turn out for you in Birmingham then? A nightmare, absolute nightmare. Yeah, um, at this time I, I was my I don't know, you know I've never been I've never been an alcoholic or anything like that, but my drinking was completely out of control. I'd I'd, I'd be out every night without fail and at the time when I first went to Birmingham I was in the team um I was playing week in week out when Trevor Francis was there so that in in one way that was good because that meant well I won't go out Friday nights um and I'll have some sort of and uh structure to my life but when Steve Bruce came um Steve's back is he Steve's back <laughs> yeah I, I I had him at Sheffield United I remember when Trevor Francis got the sack I remember picking the picking the paper up and on the back of the paper it said Steve Bruce was getting the job. I remember thinking, I better start looking for houses because <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be here much longer. Um, so yeah, I mean, when I was when I got left out of the team, then I've got no structure whatsoever. Um, I think I was training with like the under 15s, where I was training was on a completely different postcode to where the first team were training. So I had no games Saturday, no games Tuesday. Um, so then I'm, I've, I think I've got signed a four or five year contract. So. You know, it's a nightmare. Let me ask you, I mean, you talk about it as a nightmare, and let me ask you, um, I'm not a doctor, so I, the next question is one of pure human interest and by no means scientific. Mm. When you say you're out drinking every opportunity you get, but you weren't an alcoholic, how do you how do you make that differentiation, Curtis? Well, I, don't, I never woke up thinking, well, I could do with a drink, you know. I just kind of got bored and needed a bit of a buzz. I was more, I, I just used to chase uh, a high more than anything. Yeah. You know, I... I, I I don't even like alcohol, I don't like the taste of it, but I enjoy being out. I enjoy the buzz of being around people and partying and socialing. I say I do, I did back then. You know, I'm an old man now, but um, yeah, I used to, I, and that's all, that's all I chased. And football didn't give me the high anymore. The passion had completely gone. Um, so, and I had a, like I say, I, was, I had a five-year contract on, on big money. So I was I just completely stuck in a rut. It was horrible, you know, that Birmingham was the, the place where I earned the most amount of money before or since in, in my life and I'll yes. never earn that money again and it was a, it was also the most uh, upsetting part of my my life as well um, which, which some people are looking you know you see on Twitter and social media you know when people have depression well, how can he be he's got all that money but people don't understand unless you're in that situation it, it's really really difficult because you know, it, it was really tough for me, and I don't want to sound like a crybaby. Because no. like I said, I had a, I had a five-year contract on a, on a lot of money. I lived on a big house in the golf course, and I was out partying every night. So, 
you know, to yeah. the outside world, that sounds great. There but, are there are many people listening saying, yeah, that that is a kind of problem I could deal with. But, yeah, uh, but, but, it, it, but you, of course, you're not. They're not in your personal situation. Yeah. I mean, let's return to Steve Bruce, if I may, because he's yeah. he is just about the most experienced English manager we have now um, in the top couple of flights of English football. Yeah. Um, he's got a player who is clearly out of condition, who is clearly unhappy, who's on a massive contract. Did, did Steve try to help you or did you just end up butting heads with him? Well, the, the thing is what you've got to remember is Steve Bruce had me at 18 at Sheffield United and probably seen me play the best football of my career. So he knows there's a footballer in there. Well, he's probably come to Birmingham City think, rubbing his hands thinking, well, I know we've got Curtis Woodhouse on there. He's he's very good. So the, 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 the Curtis Woodhouse that Steve Bruce came back to was not the Curtis Woodhouse that, that, that he left. Um... So he was probably thinking, what the hell's happened? Yeah, I was probably at this time four stone heavier, um, unfit, uh, um, yeah. probably looked a mess. And, and he probably thought, wow. Um, and listen, f- football's a very cutthroat business. I can re- never remember being sat down in the office saying, listen, what can we do to help? It was kind of like, well, he's fallen off the track. Let's get another one. Yeah, you know, and, 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 that, and unfortunately, and it is unfortunate for the individual involved, football's moving so quickly that that's a recurring story. Yeah. You've got a problem. That it's likely that, that the club and even your, your own teammates will want to move on because they, they, they want a better player, don't they? Yeah, of course. And I'm, and I'm a football manager now, and I'd like to think as a manager I'd, I'd maybe, you know, approach the, the situation differently. Um, I'd probably try and help that individual every way I can. Also, on the flip side, you know, if Steve Bruce had pulled me into the office and tried to help, I wouldn't have taken any notice anyway. You know, at this time, I'm 21, 22, so I'm still a young man. I've half given up on myself. I've given up on football. I don't really care what anyone's got to say. I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing, and that's that. So it's all right saying oh, I wish I'd have had help, but I wouldn't have t- accepted that help anyway. I wasn't ready to listen to anybody. And at that point, I think I went. Well, I know I know how long it was because it got brought up in a in a in a court case that I that I went to when because Birmingham I got sacked from Birmingham City because um, I went on a 44 day uh, bender, and I, I know that because they brought it up in oh court. My and, God. and I remember sat there thinking, "Wow, 44 days, good effort." Yeah. You know, I had no remorse whatsoever. I was sat there. Where, I remember turning up. I had a pair of tracksuit bottoms on with coffee stains all over them because I'd been out the night before and I tried to sober up. And I got sacked. I think I had three years left on my contract, probably worth thousands and thousands well, of pounds. Of course and it was, yeah. Yeah, and I got yeah I got sacked from Birmingham City. I remember um, Steve Bruce ringing me, and I, I'm abroad. He was asking me when I'm coming back, and I just says I don't know whenever. By the time I got came back, I had all these letters from Karen Brady, basically saying that the club was going to sack me. I didn't care, I wasn't bothered, and I went to a hearing in the FA, and they terminated my contract. Um, it's almost unheard of, Curtis. You really have to be, uh, if I might use a, a judgmental phrase, you have to be very badly behaved um, for for a football club to be allowed to terminate your contract. But there you are. You're, you, you're, you're doing it. I mean, I should make the point that you, Birmingham were promoted in the middle of this and you did play three times in the Premier League. So once again, we have this 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 bizarre picture of somebody who is very, very, very talented. But as you say, is not making perhaps the best of the talent. Well, uh, and uh, You say you wouldn't listen to anyone, but I've got to ask you this question. Did you ever... I mean, it's, it, it, it sounds very isolated life, uh, uh, Curtis. Did you ever actually sit down with anybody, inside or outside the game, uh, medical or friend, and just say, I think I've got a problem here? No, I, n- I never did. And and it just wasn't... It, like I say, it's a different era now. Football's different now. It's all changed. It's different. You know, I, was, I went down to the whole city training ground the other day and I was speaking to their kitman down there. And he, he said they'd just gone on pre-season tour to Portugal and they had 33 members of staff there. 
you know, there was all these people in the medical area. But at, that, at my time, I think there was a manager, the assistant, the fitness coach and the kit man. That was pretty much it. And it's changed so much. So there wasn't all this, you know, there wasn't all these terms and what what you'd label people at the time. And I don't know what I would have been Nick labeled. Probably, I don't know what it was. But I just know that I was completely and utterly a young man that had just kind of got lost, lost his way. I don't, yeah. I, everyone always says to me, what, how did it all how did it all happen? And there's not one thing I can just point my finger on. All I just look at is a long three-year thing that just, I don't know, just erupted in, and I couldn't ever put the fire out. It had gone. You went to Peterborough yeah. um, where you, uh, you came in contact with another one of the great characters of the English football game, uh, Barry Fry. Yeah, I had a bit of time out. Like I, said, I, got, I got sacked from Birmingham City and yes. decided I wasn't ever going to play again by this time. I'd decided I didn't want to play. And I, I got a phone call out the blue um, and it was from Baz. And he, he rang me up because obviously he had links with Birmingham City being yeah, their course, form, yeah. former manager. So he must have had dialogue with them. And he rang me up and says, will you come and play? And I was like, no, I don't want to play Baz. I'm retired. I've I've had enough, and at this time I was still waiting for the court case to go through. I wasn't officially sacked. Uh, yeah, I had to go through the hearing at the PFA. So, Bass says to me, "Well, come and train with us. Uh, if you come down and train while your court case is happening, you don't enjoy it. No problems. We'll go our separate ways." So, and Bass is such a, a bubbly character; you can't not enjoy being in his company. So, I went down, did a few training sessions, and and got a little bit of a buzz back for it. So, yeah, I ended up signing for for Peterborough United and. I had a, I got player of the year that year, and and I'd I've got good memories of Peterborough. It it started really well for me, um, and then uh, at that point, that's when I first met the man that got me on the track for wanting to be a professional boxer, which was Gary Daru. Um, Tell us about Gary. Who who is uh, who he is, and 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 how he's affected you. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I say it started well at Peterborough, and it did, but. You know, me being me, the old demons come back and I couldn't, I was falling out with everybody at, at Peterborough and, you know, I just kind of on the training ground, I was erupting in the dressing room at half time. I was going crazy and just basically going nuts and Barry Fry pulled me in the office and just says, why are you so angry? And I, I, I didn't know why. And he says, there's a boxing gym just down the road from from us um, ran by Gary Daru. Now, obviously, I'm a boxing fan and yeah. I knew Gary Daru was a former British champion, so obviously held him in high esteem he says and Baz says do you want to go down and train there we can sort it out if you do so I says yeah he just says go and hit a few bags and you know try and not come in so angry um so I went down and started training with Gary Daru um doing the pads the the fitness circuits things like that and then you know I'm always one of them that wants to push the envelope a little bit more so I used to say to to Gaz I said come on Gaz let me spar with some of your lads and he would never let me spar um, he was like, no, you've got a game next week and what if you get a cut eye, blah, 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 the football club will go mad at me. And I just pestered him for months and months and months. And then in the end, um, this was I was still playing football yeah. at the time. And in the end, I, uh, he finally gave up and, and let me end up sparring with some of the lads. Um, and as it went on, I was getting better and better. And some of the lads, when I first started, used to you know give me a little bit of a going over in sparring. And then a few months down the line, um, the lads that used to be a 
give me a going over in sparring. I could hold my own, and then I was starting to get on top of them. So, I mean, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it, Curtis? Because in football, um, as you're as you're making your way, learn the game. You can you can still, to some extent, you can fake how good you are. You can do yeah. a fancy trick, or you can be faster than somebody, and you think, yeah, I can play the football game. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Boxing, you've got a very clear measure of how good or how bad you are because you you you're either hurt or you're doing the hurting. Yeah, exactly. And like so, there's there's only one way of, of learning in boxing and that's the hard way you know when you when you get get it wrong you get punched in the mouth and it stings a little bit so yeah it's but it, it was great for me because it took my mind off my job that I hated which was being a professional footballer so it gave me another another release um so yeah so I've got I've got good memories at Peterborough and if you speak to some of the Peterborough fans and I do on Twitter you know they they say god you you're really good for us and I just look at that time as a time where I was well past my best as a footballer. Yeah. I just didn't want to be a footballer anymore. Um, I was doing it for one thing only at that time, and that was money. Yeah, you, 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 I mean, you, you had a family by this stage. You needed money, yeah. I guess, yeah. And uh, you, you, went, you went to Hull, to Hull, back to your home, uh, essentially your home club, if you like, because yeah. um, although you played for Sheffield United, Driffield is, is quite near Hull. You played under Peter Taylor there. Then, as we heard, um, Russell Slade came back into your life. He... Uh, he asked you to come and play for him at Grimsby. Um, and all the time here, I guess we're formulating, uh, we're coming to the moment where you're going to drop what is it, an incredible bombshell. I mean, people hearing the background now don't find, find it so surprising. But those of us who just followed the game of football, suddenly you've got a professional footballer saying, nope, I'm stopping this now in the middle of my career and I'm going to become a boxer. Can you remember, did you struggle with the idea? Did it come to you in a flash of lightning? How did you work up this idea that you were going to become a boxer, Curtis? Well, I decided I was going to do it when I was at Peterborough United. And then, like you said, at the time, Hull City came in for me. Um, and Hull City were on the rise. They'd just been promoted from League 2 to League 1, then from League 1 to the Championship. So they'd had back-to-back promotions, and they were my hometown club. But like you said, at this point, I'd completely given up on football. But something inside me was telling me that because no one had ever done it before, it, it, it's not right to just retire from football at 26. Nobody does that. You know, it's, it's, no. it's crazy. I'd, I've got a wife and a, and a family to support. Um, so everything in my head was telling me it was the wrong thing to do. And then when Hull City came in for me, I thought, right, it's the last throw of the dice for me. If I can't get motivated from playing in front of all, a lot of my friends I went to school with that used to go to the home games, then I definitely know 100% that the gig is up. You know, it's over for me. Um, and it, I, I just couldn't. I just didn't want to be a footballer anymore. And when I finally uh, decided to retire, I've, I've got to admit, once I it came out in the national press and everything, it was just such a big weight off my shoulders. I, I just felt, I'm so glad that's over. Um, because football at that point had brought me nothing but heartache disappointment and ultimately when I look back I was just more disappointed with myself you know how can everything that was so good for me end up being so bad um, I was just disappointed I thought I'd let everyone down I'd let myself down I'd, I'd blown an opportunity to to what I thought I was going to like all I wanted to do as a kid was play for Liverpool in England that's all I wanted to do I wanted uh-huh. to be I wanted to be John Barnes that was it you know he's a big I was a big fan of John Barnes and I was so far away from that dream I just felt totally disgusted and disappointed I'd look at myself and like my belly was hanging over my shorts and I was just like what has happened you know I just felt completely gutted with how my life had turned out really um so I just knew once it was over I was so relieved 
Um, who did you tell first? Who did you, who did you, I mean, I can see if you, in some ways, it's almost an act of desperation. People would say mm. you're, you're you're announcing you're becoming a boxer just as just as an excuse to get away from football. But you you obviously were enjoying boxing. We heard earlier on that you like fighting. Um, did, did you, who did you tell? The journalists or how did you announce this to the world? Can you recall? Well, I, I remember the 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 day that I initially thought you know what, I'm going to do this. I went to go and um, see my dad, who, who's not here anymore. Um, I went to go and see my dad, who had the pub just down from the ground at Hull City. Mm-hmm. And I went to go and speak to him. My dad was always my number one fan in anything I did. And, you know, me and my dad were everywhere together. We followed each other everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm a proper daddy's boy. Um, and I went to go and see my dad in the pub. And I just says to him, Dad, listen, I, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, he says, I, says, I, I want to give professional boxing a, a, a go he knew I was obviously sparring in that at Peterborough sure, um, sure. so he says to me he says what are you doing this afternoon son I says nothing he says uh, he got someone into work and he, we sat around the other, other end of the bar and he says do you fancy a few beers <laughs> I was never one to say do no, I so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we've got stuck into a couple of beers and bearing in, in at this time I was playing for Hull City so and the, the, the pub was just down from the ground and in and out the pub were with different supporters, blah, blah. They come, are you Curtis Woodhouse? I'd be like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you get to hear the stories about how they had trials, but they never made it. And because, it, I don't for whatever reason, it's always people's knees. Um, oh, my knee went, or I broke my leg, or I met this girl, blah, blah, blah. Yep. A few hours into it, my dad turned to me. I'll never forget. I remember it like it was yesterday. He says, do you know what, son? He says, if you walk in here in 15 years' time with a sob story about how you could have been a boxer, but you didn't, he said, it'll break my heart. He said, if you're going to do it, I'm getting choked up now just thinking about it. He said, if you're going to do it, go and do it now. He says, if not, shut up. And, and that was the moment I just thought, right, I'm going to go and do it. Um, so I did. Hey, listen, Kurt, it's, it, it's typical of this rather crazy story of yours. If I might use a word, that's probably not the right word. <laughs> yeah. That you announce it, everyone goes, oh, yeah, right, he's going to become a boxer. And yeah, we all thought that maybe that will be a three-minute fad. Meanwhile, in some ways, you have one of the most successful times of your career. You go to Grimsby Town to rejoin, help out Russell Slade. You've announced you're giving up at the end of the season. Grimsby make the playoff finals. Yeah. So you play your last game of sort of top-level professional football, because as we'll hear later on, you go, you're still playing, uh, you've played quite a lot as a, a sort of in the conference and things. Your last game of pro, big-time pro football is a blinking fine at the Millennium Stadium. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, and, and you know what? I played some really good really good football for, for Grimsby Town, and I think uh, one of the reasons was Russell Slade, uh, but also one of the reasons was I'd announced I was going to retire. So it was no longer my job anymore. In my head, it was kind of, this is... You know, I'm playing for a bit of fun now until I go on for the rest of my career. So I was just, I was back to being that kid that just wanted to play football. So I really, I really enjoyed it. And it, I felt when I left Grimsby Town, I felt that I'd kind of left on a high. Even though we'd lost the playoff final, um, I felt like, yeah, I've gone out how I wanted to go out. And that's playing for someone who I've got loads of admiration for and, and also playing some good football. So, yeah, I, I, I left on my terms. You know, when this happened, Curtis, uh, you can be, forgive people, but uh, obviously in, in most uh, circles, boxing and the general sporting press, um, first of all, most people just forgot about you, but others thought it was all a bit of a joke. How confident were you that you could turn what was a, an interest and a passion in boxing into your career and even achieve titles further down the line? Um, I mean, I was never, I never really came into it to... to 
to do all that. I just came into it because I just wanted to get back to being that kid that just wanted to do something because he loved doing it. You know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't saying I want to be world champion. I just wanted to do something that I loved doing. I wanted to wake up in the morning and do something that I loved and, and, and not something that I felt like I had to do. So that was boxing. And, and ultimately, when you're doing something you love, God, you, you improve a lot quicker. You know what I mean? When when it's your passion, when you when I went and did it and I'd go home and I'd watch videos on fighters and, and this that, and the other, you know, it, it just made me get better and better. And the beauty of it was, and, and it helped, was the criticism I was getting. Because yep. I've, I've got that type of personality that I'm, I'm one of them. I'm not going to let these bastards beat me. You know, and, and that was my outlook on it. And then every time I went on, like, picked up a newspaper or a boxing, boxing paper, I went online. You know, I'd, I'd go into gyms when I was sparring and I could hear the sniggers. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's, that kind of, that's that footballer. And then when we were sparring, the queue to spar me would be out the door and around the corner. <laughs> they all Selling want, tickets, yeah. Yeah, they all wanted their pound of flesh. Um, so that really, really spurred me on. And, you know, without that, you know, I might have drifted away from it, you know, but with that, like I said, with that attitude I had towards, you know, I'm not going to let these bastards grind me down. And yeah. It really, really helped me. Guys, let, let's talk about, I mean, you know, let's be honest. Um, you're a person that we talked earlier about. You like fighting. You've been in plenty of fights, um, fray, all kinds of things in the street and in nightclubs. Uh, and people, it's easy for people like me to believe that one skill, being good at fighting in a nightclub, is easily transferable to the professional boxing ring. But actually, uh, when I, in the cold light of day, I think that's, that's probably a very foolish thing to think, is it? <laughs> I mean, I, I was of the same opinion. Um, and as soon as, <laughs> as I thought, you know, I've had a few fights, I kind of know, I know what I'm doing here. But once you get in with a trained athlete who actually understands boxing, you know, and if you're fighting with someone and they're boxing you, you're going to, it's a nightmare. It's horrible, you know, because you're thinking, every time I do this, he's kind of doing this and hitting me in the nose and I can't hit him. It's... <laughs> It is a game of science, you know, and and you, until until you realise that you're going to be in a whole world of trouble. Um, and like I said, I, even now I do like a little bit of sparring with, you know, the local hard man or whatever wants to come down and keep fit. And or I'm I'm a trained boxer, you know, yeah. so they you're can, on the other side of that coin yeah, now, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So they can swing and do whatever they want, but you know, it, it, it's it's a whole different ball game, and it, it's that's the beauty of it, having to learn the discipline. As soon as you lose your temper in a boxing ring, you know. I guess I guess part uh, you, you know. We'll go on to talk about the success you've had in the ring, but one of the big successes is just getting in the ring. So your yeah. debut, where you'd lost two stone training with Gary DeRue, who we talked about earlier, yeah. um, you'd lost some of this weight that was obviously bothering you. That phrase you used about your belly hanging over your belt, yeah. it was obviously bothering you, the fact that you were out of condition. But tell us about your debut, because in many ways, this is, this is, this is one of your most important fights, isn't it? Well, yeah, uh, and it was, it was live on ITV4 as well. So it, I had like loads of publicity off the back of it. I was in the newspapers, and I think everyone was tuning in to kind of see what was going on. Against a man um, called Dean Mark Antonio. Yeah, I'll never forget Dean, Dean Powell, who's not with us anymore. He, he rang me up and says, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got someone for you to fight. I'm burning this man, but at this time, I'm wary of everybody in the boxing world. I've, mm -hmm. read, I've read all that. I've heard all the stories you got to be careful with these boxing lot. They're a bunch of crooks, this, that, and the other. So I get to phone call Dean, Dean Pound. He says, I've got someone for you. I'm like, all right, who is it? He says, Dean Marcantonio. And I says to him, I'll, 
I'm just going to pardon my French, but I said, fuck that, Dean. I said, there's no way I'm going to fight a Mexican on my debut. <laughs> <laughs> and he says to me, he's not a Mexican, he says he's a window cleaner from London. <laughs> Poor old Dean. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, the, we went ahead with the fight, but I thought, oh, they're trying to stitch me up here. They've got me this Mexican who's going to come and beat me up live on the telly, but yeah, he was a, he was a window cleaner from London. And, and you beat him on points. <laughs> I beat him on points, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, the, the, the whole boxing career, which we're going to hear so much about in the next 20 minutes um it almost didn't happen because uh, you had your boxing license suspended at one stage yeah i did i, I lost my license um well Why? I, well I, when i actually went for my license they they asked asked me if i'd um, got any pending um convictions coming or anything like that against me which i didn't at the time and i think i went up for the hearing on the wednesday i went out on the weekend and got in some trouble and i got charged with assaulting a police officer had you assaulted a police officer dean sorry um had you assaulted a police officer curtis well when, when you say assaulting a police officer it, it, it sounds uh i mean what what's your thoughts when i say assaulting a police well, i officer? presume it sounds like you've, you've taken a right hander at him yeah that's exactly what what the perception is but if you if you actually go through the case what the police officer had said accused me of doing was pushing him on his shoulder yeah um he then, uh, he then, I think it was six weeks off work. Um, wow. Yeah, so <laughs> exactly. I went to court and I think there was five of them that all came up with the same story, which was a lie. Um, I pleaded not guilty. I'm wondering if I do something, I'm the first one to say I did it, but, you know, assaulting a police officer. If I've assaulted him, then I've assaulted a thousand people in my time. He tried to arrest me. I pushed him off. He torn his ligaments in his shoulder, apparently, and... And I got done for assaulting a police officer. So well, you got you got the it went on, and you you got your license back. Talk to me about yeah. your the early part of your boxing career. Talk to me about becoming a serious boxer. Well, in my eyes, I was serious straight from the straight from the off. I, I, admittedly, I wasn't very good, um, but I was serious about it. I was living the life of a of a of a you know of a good fighter. I'd train twice a week. I'd completely cleaned up my diet. I don't think I touched a drop of alcohol for nearly four years. Um, you know, and I was living the life of a professional athlete like I should have. And I always tell people if I'd have had the same discipline, dedication that I had as a boxer and turned that into my football career, I'd probably still be playing now. Um, but sometimes with age comes maturity. At this time, we, we I had three children. I pretty much got rid of, got, got through every penny I've ever earned playing football. Um, so it's kind of a time of, listen, you, you, it's time to wise up here a little bit. So I completely transformed my life, and wow. and and it, it was just you know I don't want to sound cliche. Boxing changed my life, and it, it probably wasn't boxing. It was a combination of a few things, you know, um, having children, you know, hitting rock bottom, and having to to get back up. And yeah, I was in a good place mentally, physically. I was ready to embark on another journey. Um, I've got to ask you this question. I, 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 I've never asked this to any boxer before, but it's, it's been nagging me. When you go running, the famous running at six o'clock in the morning, do you hear the Rocky theme in your head? <laughs> well, I'm, I'll see, I'm not one of them that runs at six o'clock in the morning. Good for you, Curtis. That I'm looks got, like a waste of time to me. Yeah, when people say to me, like, why you've got to do it, I'm, I'm not really buying it. You know, I'll, I'll get up. You know, I'll have, I'll have a coffee. Then I'll go for a run when I'm nice and awake. So I feel like I'll run better and I'll, I'll run of quicker. Of course. Why do they go at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning? What's the matter with them? Because Rocky did it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the reason. But I'm not into it. I'll go at half past ten in my own time. <laughs> 
you, uh, you, you, you win. You win plenty of fights uh, yeah. earlier on, and uh, you, you do suffer your first defeat uh, in Belfast against a man called Jay Morris. Mm. Um, and then I think we're in the in the late two thousand nine, there comes I think a, a quite an interesting decision because you win all you you've won all your titles and all your big fights are eventually at light welterweight. You drop down from welterweight to light welterweight. What was the behind that, Curtis? Well, I, I fought at welterweight to start with. Um, and I was always one of the smaller welterweights. And you, sometimes, sometimes when you get weighed in the day before a fight, say I weighed in at 10 stone 7 at welterweight, the night of the fight I'd probably be 10 stone 10. Now some of these guys would be going up to like 11 6, 11 7, putting loads of weight, and I'd get in the ring thinking, is this the same guy? Um, you know, because you have 36 hours to rehydrate, and it's a science making weight. And I just thought to get the optimum out of my body would be to move down to 10 stone. Um, and like I said, that's where I won all my titles because then I was one. I'd weigh in at 10 stone and the night of the fight, I'd be probably about 11-1, 11-2. That was 36 hours later. So I was always one of the bigger, stronger, bigger punchers at light welterweight. Whereas at welterweight, I was middle of the road. Yeah. Is that light welterweight that you avenged that defeat against Jay Morris yeah. um, to win the first title of your career? Now, of course... So many fights these days have got these strange uh, titles attached to them. Your International Masters Light Welterweight title, that might not mean much to the members of the public, and I bet it meant a lot to you the night you won that fight. Well, I think the fight's on YouTube, and if you watch me celebrate, that'll tell you how much it means. It, I, I, um, I got revenge over Jay Morris. I, I think I knocked him out in the second round um, after he beat me on points. So it meant a lot to me. And like I said, to get my first professional title, um, yeah, it meant the world to me. I mean, I celebrated like a rock star after that. Little did I know... I'd go on and become the champion of England and Great Britain. At that time, I was just delighted to be called a champion. In 2012, you won the English light welterweight title by beating Dave Ryan. And after a, uh, you you lost the title then in February of 2013 to Shane Singleton, a split decision um, in Manchester. And after that, you got some jip on Twitter. You're on Twitter, of course. Um, uh, people, uh, one particular uh, person, let's call him an idiot for now, um, called you a disgrace. Um, for uh, to, for losing the fight, and he clearly got up your nose because what happened next is one of the, for those of us who enjoy Twitter, and I do enjoy it, and I don't enjoy the trolling and all the, all that nonsense. But I, uh, but uh, what happened next has gone into kind of Twitter history. Um, you took exception to what somebody had said to you, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell the story in one sentence. You can tell us that what actually happened. You hunted him down. <laughs> well, the the misconception of of the story is. What you've just said there, you know, I took exception to to what he said after I'd and I will say lost the English title, you know, very vaguely because, you know, the fight I won clearly. Um, I got robbed of my title. The, the boxing news had me winning eight rounds to two. Uh, remember the headline in the paper was something along the lines of what's just happened. Um, so I never lost the fight. Um, but the guy came on the next day, basically giving me a bit of stick about the fight, but. That's the that conception of what happened, but this had been going on for months. You know, th this guy had. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, people just think it was just that one day, and I, I blew up, but it wasn't. This had been going on for, I'd say, two or three months. The, this guy had been um, giving me stick. The, the stick that I, that I get every day, which is water off a duck's back. Sure. Rubbish at football, rubbish at boxing. You know, I'm like, you bloody hell bit original think something else so, yes and then one day three months before this had happened he he sent me a tweet that says um i sent a tweet out saying just done the school run um going into town to do some shopping or something mundane along them lines yeah so he sends me a tweet saying um 
you want to be careful where you send your kids to school because you never know who's watching. Okay, right. So so this is where it all starts. So it, so I send him one back saying, I'm all for fun and games, but if you overstep the mark, then it's a whole different story. Um, so he sends a few things back. And I didn't hear from him again for a while. A month later, he sends something else, which is about my wife. Um, once again, I told him, carry on, see what happens. Then the morning after I lose the fight, he pops up again. At this time, he's already got my back up a little bit and it's more of a the, the straw that broke the camel's back to be sure. honest i'd woke up i'd lost my title been robbed of my title i had the raving ump anyway and then jimmy brown pants pops up whose um real name was james o'brien i believe mm-hmm. um so he pops up basically having a, having a go at me for losing my title so <laughs> i remember saying to him um i can't remember what i said to him but i, rem- I remember st- putting a tweet out saying, um, this guy's been giving me stick, overstepped the mark. If anyone can tell me what his name and address is, I'll give him a thousand pounds. So you put a bounty on him. I I put a bounty (laughs) on his head. (laughs) I put a bounty on his head. So sometimes you forget the power of Twitter. Sometimes you do. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible, isn't it? You forget the the power of social media. So I put it out there and I put my phone on the side. I'm, I'm, I'm watching Jeremy Kyle or whatever it was I was watching. The next thing, all I can hear my phone is going bing, 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 bing. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what the hell's happening here? So put my phone on. All of a sudden, my phone's going crazy. And I get to direct message off, um, I won't say where it's no, off. somebody. Yeah. And uh, his job is to find out what people do. So he sends me he sends me this dossier, basically. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, off, off where he lived, what his name was, um, who his parents were. He even told me what Sunday league football team he played for. And then under that was their fixture list. <laughs> so, so I knew exactly where he was going to be every Sunday. So I'm thinking, wow, this is brilliant. Um, and at this time, Joey Barton yep. had retweeted what had happened. Now he's got about 4 million followers. Yeah, he really does have a lot of followers. Yeah. yeah so all of a sudden, this has gone to a whole different ball game. Um, so I, then I posted the guy's uh, name and address on Twitter. So... I says, right, and I put it in my sat nav, and it came up. I was forty-seven miles away. Nothing, nothing. nothing. Half a tank of, but not, not even, yeah. not even a small tank of petrol. That the way I drive, it's thirty minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so I sent him a message saying uh, I put his address, name, address. I says, I'll see you in uh, forty-five minutes, Jim Bob. Oh get, my god. Get the kettle on. <laughs> so he sends one back saying, uh, you're not going to come here. So I says, I'm already in the car. So. <laughs> At this point, I'm traveling and I'm updating Twitter with my progress. Um, <laughs> then John Prescott sends a tweet out saying, uh, this is how we deal with things in Hull. Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, and it, of course, he likes a fight as oh, well. He loves a fight, yeah. So so he's all over it. Then Lennox Lewis has started tweeting. So all of a sudden, you've got some big names that are retweeting. So it's probably gone out at this oh, point. Oh, it's, it's so, gone right. It's flying yeah, around the world now, yeah, Kurt is. 10 million people are now waiting for my progress, seeing what's happening. Curtis Uh, Woodhouse, social (laughs) avenger. Yeah, exactly. So I I sent another tweet saying, I'm 15 miles away. So (laughs) he he, he sends me one. He sends a uh, tweet to me saying, "Um, listen, I think I've gone too far with this. (laughs) I'm I'm really sorry. Can we just stop this now? (laughs) So I sent one back. And so I retweeted it. So it's gone out to obviously these 10 million people that can't see what's happening. So I sent one back saying, too late for all that, Jim Bob. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I got to the top of his road, finally. 
um, and I took a picture of his road sign and where he lived, it's it's uh, there's one road in and one road out. It's like a cul-de-sac. Yeah. And at the time, I had a sponsored car. I had my name all down the side of it. So how can I describe it? I was I was I was prowling like a shark. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just driving round and round in a circle, and I was looking for whichever neck curtain twitched or, yeah. or to yeah. see kind of oh is it looking? So there's no way to not know that it was me because like I said, my name's plastered all over the car. So. I just parked in the middle of the crescent, got out of my car and stood there. Now, by this time, I'd calmed down. I've seen what's happening and I've, uh, I'm having a laugh and a joke about it. Luckily for him. Yeah. So I sent a message to my mate saying, what number does he live at? Um, the person that had sent me the information. So yes. he sent one back saying, I'm not telling you the number. Otherwise, I'm going to be an accessory for murder. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so by this time, I just said it. And, and he was groveling at this point. Oh, uh, yeah. Jim, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I mean, you've got you've a professional boxer prowling your street. You've got to hide. <laughs> yeah. I'm on his side now. I'm with you, Curtis, all the way till you get to his street. Now I'm on his side. I think it just got a little bit too real for him yeah, when, uh, I, when I rolled up. It was absolutely brilliant. And, of course, it did warn a lot of people that, you yeah. know, the, 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 other, the person on the other end of that tweet is a human being as well. Yeah. And you ended up, of course, on Daybreak on the TV uh, where he apologised to you. He did, and I got paid a quite a few quid for that as well. Good so man. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good day out ad by all. But uh, what I will say on that is, you know, I, l when I met this James O'Brien guy, the guy weighs eight and a half stone with all his clothes on. Yeah. But I didn't know that. And when he's threatening my wife and children, how do I know that he's not for real? Absolutely. No, no. So I, say, for, say, for instance, I go out and train. I come back to my house and something's happened. You know, and I haven't acted on what he said. I'm never going to be able to forgive myself for that. So, you know, I'm all for having a laugh and a joke. But once you start threatening my wife and my children, then, you know, I'm going to do something about that. And I make no apologies for what I did whatsoever. Okay. And, and, and you know, if, if I'm sure every man feels the same. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a old school guy. I'm a, I, you know, you, I protect my family. Simple as that. Okay. Well, listen, let's get back to the boxing. Yeah. Um, and certainly there is a block button on those, on those phones, uh, Curtis. Well, that's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Um, the, 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 um, your boxing career, it wasn't a, a fairy tale. You did have defeats along the way. You did have rough decisions go against you. But I yeah. guess it all comes to a wonderful point of light. Um, you've uh, you lost uh, the Commonwealth, a Commonwealth title bid. But, uh, you know, there comes this moment last year where you fight Darren Hamilton at home in the Hull Arena for the British light welterweight title. Because if you wear a Lonsdale belt, you're British champion, uh, if you get that, that, that title, no one can say you're not a proper boxer. Tell us about the night you became British champion. The, the beauty of the British title and the Lonsdale belt is they, they don't give them away. Like, like what you said earlier, there's so many phony belts yeah. um, kicking around now. And, and even the Commonwealth title now is, is being devalued so much because, you know, you, you get fighters coming from abroad who can't fight. Simple mm. as that. So they're giving them away. Where the British Boxing Board of Control, you, they don't give the British title away. To win that, you've got to earn it and you've got to be the best in Britain. That's why it's held in such high esteem. Whereas, you know, it's probably the only belt that's still got some sort of credibility in, in professional boxing. And I, I lost my English title, um, and it can. And bearing in this mind, I'm 34 at this time, yeah. and making 10 stone is getting hellish. It's kind of now or never, isn't it? It's now or never. Um, and Darren Hamilton had defended, won the title, defended it twice against people ranked higher than me. He needed one more win to win it outright. Um, Matchroom at a sky, at a Sky Show in Hull, needed a fall guy. And chose me. Here's what else, yeah. Yeah, he, he's from the area. 
he ex-footballer comes with a bit of a story yeah easy win for Darren Hamilton brilliant happy days he ticks every box so I remember I'll never forget Dave ringing me up one day and says uh, where are you I'm just at home Dave he says he sat down I said as soon as he said that I knew what was coming next I says yeah he says I've got you the British title fight and I'm like wow and he I remember I got choked up and I just thought this is it and I always said to to everybody I said if they give me an opportunity to fight for it I'll win it because every fighter's got that one night where they feel invincible. We're back to Rocky here, aren't we? Yeah, and 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 I just knew that it was going to be my night. And I and I told Darren in the press conference and everything that they've picked the wrong person at the wrong time. Um, Curtis, the fight um, went the whole twelve rounds. How hard was it? Yeah, it was horrible. Really, really tough fight. Um, close fight. And I remember going all throughout my training camp. We were doing these. I was doing these sprints with Adam Booth over in London. And at one time, I think we did, I think it was 9,700 metres. So we did 100 metres, 12 seconds rest. And then I had to go again, sprinting. It was horrible. The worst session I've ever done in my life. And we, and he always used to say to me, Adam did, he says, um, it's all square with two rounds to go. You need to win both rounds to become British champion, just to give me that motivation. And I'll never forget, I came back after round 10 and I was shattered. Um, and he sat me down in the stool and he says, remember what we said in the training camp? I says, what? And he says, well, you're here now. He says, it's dead square. He said, you've got two rounds to go and you've got to win both rounds to be British champion. So I thought, I'm here. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. And um, rounds 11 and 12, I bashed him up. Um, I, I, I put it on him. I hurt him three or four times in both them rounds. Nearly stopped him, I think, in, in round 11. I had, him, I had him on the ropes and I won the last two rounds and it, it went to a split decision. Well, listen. I must have watched that fight, I think over a hundred times and, and, and every time they make the announcement and the new, just the hairs and even now, it makes me emotional just knowing the journey that I've come from and even listening to it then, it, it, it never gets old. Um, just a, a slight aside on it, did you have a bet um, that you were going to be the British champion when you took up, took up boxing? I'll tell you what, I keep telling everybody else. I will neither confirm nor deny that rumour. <laughs> I have to read about it in my autobiography. I'm, I'm looking forward to that very much indeed. I mean, that is the highlight, of course, of your boxing career, a career um, which you've now uh, given up on to go back into football and football management and much else besides. But let's be fair, um, there'll never be uh, a story like yours. That, that was the incredible highlight of it. Thank you very much indeed for sharing uh, most of the journey with us. And we ended the last section by talking about Curtis fulfilling his dream of becoming a British champion. Well, somebody who, can, uh, who definitely helped him fulfill that dream is Dave Coldwell who for 99% of his time as a boxer has been uh, Curtis's trainer, manager, promoter, sometimes all three things at the same time. It's a very big hello to Dave Coldwell. Hello, Dave. Hi, mate. How are you doing? Uh, very, very good indeed. Uh, Curtis is also here, of course. You can talk to him. Hi, Dave. You all right, mate? No, bad, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good. good. Dave, Dave, you know, you're a, you're a boxing man through and through, and you're part of this, This uh, some would say amazing, some would say slightly madcap story where a footballer gives up in the middle of one career and says, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to come British champion. Um, what was he like when you first, when he first, I think you had your gym in Rotherham, when he first turned up there, could you see a potential British champion? Well, firstly, I'd say it's, it's both a madcap and an amazing story. Yeah. Um, when, when Curtis, we first heard that this footballer was giving up professional football to become a boxer. We all basically like laughed and thought, what's he playing at? And then um, I was aware of him when I, I actually watched his debut. 
and when I watched his debut, I looked at him and I just thought, oh, he's he's useless. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, Cheers, Dave. And I, I was, I, well, well, I'll be honest, I looked after a journeyman at the time, Daniel Thorpe, and, and Thorpe was a good journeyman, but he lost to absolutely everybody. Um, and and Thorpe, he rang me up and said, Dave, get me him. I'll beat him. It's a win. Now, this is how, how bad <laughs> You're being used as a punching bag here, Curtis. <laughs> Honestly, this is how bad he was. Now, when when it, I got the call to offer Dean Powell, asked me would I like to look after him and train him. I thought, well, well, what do I need a prima donna footballer for? I thought, well, I'll give him a go, see what he's like, and you know, see what his attitude is. And um, to be fair, from day one, from the minute he walked into my gym, um, his attitude was great. I, I, I thought the kid was, you know, it, it was, it was. He had the all, all the, you know, the, he knew that he wanted it. He knew that he, he was doing it for the right reasons, not a gimmick. Um, he really wanted to become a, a fighter. Again, we thought he was mad, but you know, I, I, I gave him a go. I, I watched his first training I, I always let him. If somebody's boxed before, I always have a look at him first and see naturally how they, how they need to progress. Progress. Um, and I looked at him and I said to him, I said, what? Because you were boxing in the Southpaw. And I said to him, I said, why are you a Southpaw? And he said, I, I don't know. No. Well, you're a Southpaw. I said, what? why? He said, well, it's just how I've, I've, I've been taught and how I am. I said, right. I said, well, do me a favor. I said, tomorrow, come in uh, and do everything orthodox. So he did. And he did everything orthodox. And I said to him, I said, how do you feel? Do you feel better? And he said, yes, I feel a lot better. So that was the first job, was teaching him to do everything the other way now. Yeah, back and, to front, yeah. Yeah, back to front. And, and But the thing is, the one thing about Kurt is we had other talented kids in there, Kel Brook, Ryan Rhodes, you know, a lot of good kids coming through. Um, but he was the one that, that you just knew he wanted to learn. He, you know, as time went on, as you know, sparring sessions went on and everything, and he'd get battered off of Kel, battered off of Ryan, and he'd just keep coming back for more. And he'd, he, you know... He's, he's an, an absolute role model for any other boxer out there, you know, because you can start off, he's living proof that you can start off, and no disrespect to him, but you can start off absolutely useless and end up becoming... That's no disrespect, of course. Yeah, yeah not, none taken, not. Dave, none taken. It's <laughs> not. It's, listen, it's, it's the highest form of, of flattery if... if if you want, because he's come from the absolute rock bottom and, and he's showing every single kid. Not every kid can be a Luke Campbell. Not every kid's going to win loads of, loads of runners in amateurs and then look when he turns around and think, oh, I can do what he's doing. Because they might not have, not have that background. They might not have that confidence. They might not have that ability. But every kid out there that's boxing right now as an amateur that's starting off, they can look at Curtis Woodhouse and say, well, here's a man that started from absolutely from zero, in fact sub-zero because everybody would take it mick out of him because he was leaving football to come to boxing and he succeeded, so if he can succeed, anybody else can. Dave, I've got to ask you, I mean, I've been speaking to Curtis now for, you know, uh, the best part of two hours and the way he describes himself um, uh, when he got to the end of his football career disillusioned, um, yeah. out of condition, unhappy with, it, with life, not living uh, in a way that would make a person happy um, what contribution do you think uh, that boxing has made to turning Curtis's whole life around. Well, again, when you know he 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 spoke to me and he told me about this. I mean, I couldn't. But you know, I'm a massive Man United fan, and and I go and watch Man United at Old Trafford, and it's it's just being a fan there buzzing. Now, when he's telling me he's on pitch playing at places like that, and he's got no emotion for it, and he just can't be bothered with it, I'm thinking he's nuts. Yeah. 
You know, now if you're that sort of, if if you've got that sort of mentality, and we all grow up, ninety nine percent of boys grow up wanting to be a footballer. And if you're in that position and it's just not doing anything for you, it is time to get out. But you've got to find that when you're competitive, like Curtis is, you've got to find that that niche that's going to give you that same drive, that same desire. Otherwise, it's going to be a, a you know it's going to be a spiral into into bad things. And I think what boxing did. Is, is it gave him that competitiveness. It gave him that drive and that hunger. Um, and in every single training session, you had that. Like I said, he wasn't the most natural, but I'll tell you what, he was the most most determined. And um, and I think that's what boxing gave him. It gave, you know, it gave him that that um, that passion again. And you know, obviously on the back of that, he, he seems a much more happier person now. And Dave, uh, we, we we spoke a few minutes ago um, about the night that he became. British champions. Yeah. Uh, clearly, it's it's an amazing uh, climax, a zenith, if you like, uh, to to his. Uh, we both described it as amazing and madcap story. Yeah. Um, you yourself, I, I imagine a person who's seen it all in the world of boxing like yourself. Even you must have had a tear in your eye. Oh man, yeah, we had a doubt. It weren't just tear, uh, a tear in one eye. It was tears full stop. <laughs> you know that 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 night, the pressure. I mean, as as Curtis as trainer and manager, and I've promoted him, and you know, as, uh, the team behind everything that I do, you know, we all wanted him to win so badly that night. You know, myself, Spencer Firm, a business partner, we we was up the night before. We were talking about it for a week before. We just we just want we knew everything hinged on that. Everything we'd done beforehand, you know, you build him up. He gets beat, you bring him back. You get beat, you bring him back. And we knew that this fight was the one that, that it all counted for. Everything else that goes beforehand gets forgotten about. If he wins this British title, that's, that's his dream completed. Now, there's nothing more satisfying when you're working in boxing on the outside of ropes and looking after fighters than, than making a fighter's dreams come true because you know what the fighter puts in. He's, people just see you know, the 12 rounds on the night. You don't yeah. see the lifestyle that they live. You don't see how the family goes off and have days out and they have to stay in the house because they've got to go to gym twice. They don't see the stuff that they miss out on the kids and, and, and just friends and just social life. We see that and we live that with them. And when you know what it means for them, especially with Curtis coming from being a bit of a joke and everybody taking a mic and nobody on Twitter, Facebook, press, nobody wanted to give him credit for what he was doing. Now, we knew that should he win that British title, nobody can say anything ever again. He no. succeeded. Yeah. And when we started off, it was called, you know, we called it Mission Impossible. Well, you know, we, we, we did it. Mission complete. <laughs> okay, thank you very much indeed. That was Dave Coldwell, of course, um, Curtis's uh, trainer, mentor, promoter, uh, and all the rest of it. And I thanks to him for joining us here on My Sporting Life. Well, Curtis, we're coming towards the end of the programme, and of course, you, you've since lost the that British title that you won, and you've given up boxing. How difficult a decision was that, and why did you make it? It was a really difficult decision, um, but ultimately, um, I, I knew after I won the British title, I was never the same. I never had that burning desire to to do anything else. I just all I ever wanted to do from when I put the gloves on was to become British champion. And once I'd done that it was really difficult for me then to set other goals. I, I was 35, like I said, and making 10 stone was proving close to impossible. Uh, it made me moving back up to, to welterweight and having to kind of start again. So, listen, deep down, I, I knew once I won the British title, it was only a matter of time before I hung the gloves up. Um, it was difficult, but it, it was the right decision. Curtis, often 
uh, when I interview people here, they're, they're in their 50s, their 60s, uh, and their life is generally more behind them and ahead of them. That's not your, the case with you. Tell us what you're doing now and what indeed you hope for and what you might try and do in the future, um, both personally and professionally, because there's still a long road ahead of you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the manager now at Hull United. Um, that's my next career. Gone back to football. Yeah, I've gone back to football. I mean, it took me a long time to to get over what happened to me in football and I was bitter towards it for for a long time. I didn't watch a football game, I don't think, for, for nearly three years and the, the person that brought me back into football was my youngest son when he's, he wanted to start playing so I started watching him play and, and got the buzz back again. But yeah, I mean, football management is, is my next career I want to get into. You know, I think I've got a lot to give the game and it's something I believe football managing, I think 95% of it is dealing with people and that's, and that's a, a real strength of mine. Tactically, I, I know football inside out, but dealing with people, I believe, will be my forte. So one day I hope to, to manage Sheffield United. Wow. And wh- what would you say if you came across a really tal- talented young kid who was showing signs of going down the same roads you did? How would you deal with that now with the knowledge of your own life? Uh, one thing I would do is I, I'd try and help. I, I, I'd, I'd do everything I could to help the guy, you know, because sometimes I think maybe all I need was a little bit of maybe an arm around my shoulder, a little bit of of guidance, a little bit of someone saying that, listen, it's going to be all right. Um, I never really had that. So I just try and do everything to help. And in a, in a story which we've uh, tried our best to, to convey to, the, to our listeners over the past two hours, there's been uh, a great deal of, of unhappiness or, and personal kind of regret about things that are, have happened to you. Where are you now in your life, Curtis? I guess the question I'm trying to ask you is, are you, are you happy, Curtis? I mean, uh, a, a big part of of me, what's the word I'm probably looking for, forgiving myself was was doing what I did in boxing because I, I proved to myself that I wasn't what everyone was saying I was. I wasn't a, a mess up. I wasn't someone who, who wasted their life. So, you know, winning the British title was kind of my redemption. And like I say, I'm, I'm so happy now. I'm content. I've got a beautiful wife and, and three lovely kids. Um... So, yeah, I'm a happy, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy and I'm content with everything I've done in my life. And I finally, it took me a long time, but I've finally forgiven myself for the things I did as a young kid. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. 